Welcome back to the podcast. That was Deck the Halls. Just kidding. That was Jingle Bells, performed by Bing Crosby and the Andrews Sisters in 1945. And I'm not just playing the song because I was writing this podcast over Christmas. Jingle Bells was written as a Thanksgiving song by James Lord Pierpont, the uncle of famous financier John Pierpont Morgan, known as J.P. Morgan, who will figure prominently in this podcast. I want to start you off picturing a great movie trope. It often gets trotted out in cop shows, police procedurals, that kind of genre. I'm talking about the yarn wall. It's a home DIY craft manifestation of how one tracks conspiracies. I know you've seen it before. A character will, as their sanity flees them, start to collect every scrap of information they can find about their subject. They might pin clippings to a corkboard or tape them to the walls. A highlighter and a sharpie provide clarity. But the real piece de resistance is when they break out the yarn. The yarn is used to illustrate plush connections between suspects or business leaders or government officials. The conspiracy web knitted becomes more complex over time. Sometimes the yarn is rerouted. The crazed person weaves this new blanket of information over the old one. Maybe they get two different colors of yarn. Now, this is normally not represented as healthy behavior. The disgraced cop or the intrepid journalist usually starts to lose their mind as the yarn well is constructed in uh, reverse proportion. Their eyes turn bloodshot, their demeanor bleakens. And when someone else finds their conspiracy art project, they have to explain. They say, look, if you just follow the connections, I swear this is real. Or they'll say, you have to listen to me. Or they'll say, I swear, I'm not crazy. If they say the last bit, well, by then it's too late. This podcast is about the uncovering of a vast conspiracy, not of murder. In our case, this is a conspiracy of money. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know I often like to find a cast of characters, especially ones opposed to each other. That's how this podcast will work. In my last podcast, No Taxation and No Representation, I mentioned the giant of 19th and 20th century finance, J.P. Morgan, and his immense control over the financial system. I talked about how powerful bankers like J.P. Morgan had the ability to create both economic disaster and economic recovery, and how nervous it made the American public a little over 100 years ago from when I'm recording this in 2021. That story got me interested in the general time period of the 19-teens and how folks living in the period viewed high finance and financial crashes. That's when I uncovered one of the biggest yarn walls I think I've ever seen. The yarn wall we'll talk about in this podcast is the Money Trust a conspiracy theory whose contours were talked about publicly in the halls of Congress and eventually investigated by some of the most celebrated politicians of the day. In this podcast, you're going to meet the guy who made a congressional yarn wall between the largest and richest banking institutions of the day, taking on J.P. Morgan in the process. You're going to hear complaints about the danger of the concentration of wealth and the power of high finance. You're going to hear their proposed solutions to the problem, usually involving government, all falling under the umbrella of an era called progressive. I'm doing this podcast for a few reasons. One is at this age we're talking about the tail end of the robber baron era. It's just fascinating. 
I love the late 19th and early 20th century for a lot of reasons, but one of them is that the period brought into existence many of the systems we still use today. It was a period of immense progress and social change, and it was a time of pandemic, war, and titanic characters. Another reason I'm covering this topic is that as I record this in 2021, I think America is entering a new period of financial earthquakes. Right around the time I'm, I'm recording this, this is on Sunday the... What is the date here? The 31st. There is currently a stock market debacle going on regarding GameStop, the video game brick and mortar store, and the uh, Robinhood stockbroker, which all of this, the Federal Reserve has decided not to weigh in on, at least as of the time of uh, writing and speaking this. I think the systems we relied on for the last 100 years, the systems I'm going to describe in this podcast, are starting to get a little shaky. You might think this is a conspiracy theory or fear-mongering, but Janet Yellen, former head of the Federal Reserve Board and now in the Biden administration, gave me reason to doubt her in a speech she gave in October of 2016. It's a real nail-biter called Macroeconomic Research After the Crisis. She gave it at the 60th Annual Economic Conference sponsored by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. This is, uh, you know, this is a conference for adrenaline junkies. I'm telling you. Anyway, if you can get past the snoozy title and read it, you'll see her say this, and I guess the people that day got to hear her say this. In her talk, she says this, quote, Extreme economic events have often challenged existing views of how the economy works and exposed shortcomings in the collective knowledge of economists. To give two well-known examples, both the Great Depression and the stagflation of the 1970s motivated new ways of thinking about economic phenomena. More recently, the financial crisis and its aftermath might well prove to be a similar sort of turning point. Today, I would like to reflect on some ways in which the events of the past few years have revealed limits in economists' understanding of the economy and suggest several important questions I hope the profession will try to answer. End quote. Again, this is Janet Yellen. She is, or was at the time anyway, the head of the Federal Reserve. She's saying that two crises in the 20th century, the Great Depression and then the stagflation in the 1970s, called into question how monetary policy and even economics works. And then Janet Yellen says that the crisis of 2008, that's the housing crisis you might have heard of, pushed us into a new phase of understanding economics. And she says that the new crisis has raised some interesting questions. So I'm going to summarize her talk. You can find it online. I'll put it in the show notes. Um, but I'm going to raise her questions here. So number one, are there circumstances in which changes in aggregate demand can have an appreciable persistent effect on aggregate supply? That's number one. Number two, do individual differences within broad groups of actors in the economy influence aggregate economic outcomes? And finally, my personal favorite, how does the financial sector interact with the broader economy? Okay. So you may not be into high finance, and so I'm going to try to translate these for you. So let me translate number one. So I, this is what I think she's saying. Does supply affect demand in the economy? <laughs> okay. Number two, do different people making decisions influence the way the entire economy works? And then number three, how do banks, insurance companies, real estate, you know, the financial sector work within the whole economy? Okay. So if you are not into finance, you're not into economics, that's okay. Because if you maybe have familiarity with the economic system, these should sound basic. 
They, they really should sound basic because these are the basic questions that Janet Yellen, the head of the Central Bank of the United States, is saying are unanswered, right? Does supply affect demand? Do people making decisions influence the way the economy works? And how do you know the financial sector companies work within the economy? She's saying that these are unanswered questions that need to be studied because of the 2008 financial crisis. That indicated to me and others, I think I got this off of Zero Hedge in the first place, zerohedge.com, one of my favorite financial sites. Anyway, this indicated to me that when I read it, that the wizards and warlocks in charge of the financial system don't actually understand how sailing works or how to tie a knot, but are at the helm of a massive ship barreling through uncharted waters. I think the average person should be pushed into taking an interest in high finance. History is a nice lens to understand what's going on in the present. It's certainly not something that the average person likes to have to take an interest in, but if things crack open like they did in 2008, and maybe they are with this whole GameStop nonsense, and if things go bad, people will begin to demand the construction of new yarn walls by their elected representatives and journalists and the people around them. They might even create their own yarn walls, as I do often with this podcast. That's what happened in the 19-teens, and I want to show you how a century ago, the people that sought to learn about the problems they encountered and how they fixed them was an interesting thing. And I shouldn't say fix them because they tried to fix them. Because, spoiler alert, I don't see the ending of this story as bright. In fact, it's kind of stark. This podcast, The First Thing is Character, is a slice of that heroic attempt at change and maybe how your best attempts at change don't result in what you wanted after all. So let me get you into part one, the old man. First, I want you to meet J.P. Morgan. Okay, I want you to try to meet J.P. Morgan because the guy has spawned a slew of biographies, a few vats of spilled ink, and a lot of animosity and gnashing of teeth. There's a bank that carries his name today, J.P. Morgan Chase. Here's a commercial with comedian Kevin Hart shilling for the ghost of J.P. Morgan. I work hard and I want my money to work hard too. So I use my Freedom Unlimited card. Even when I'm spending, I'm earning 1.5% cash back on everything I buy. Earning on headphones. <laughs> earning. Earning. Still earning. He is a titan of American industry and American history. J.P. Morgan, that, that is, not, not Kevin Hart. Anyway, Morgan was, at one time, one of the most powerful men in America, if not the world. Let me give you an overview of the rise of J.P. Morgan because much of this podcast will actually cover the end of this man's life in March of 1913. J.P. Morgan was born with an eye for an investment. Famously, he made a tremendous amount of money off the railroad system during the second half of the 19th century. The railroad system was how you moved goods and people across the expanding frontiers of America during the 1800s. Remember, there wasn't automobiles. The fastest way you could travel was a horse until you had the railroads come around. Track was being laid as quickly as possible during the period. And J.P. Morgan, born in April of 1837, had the foresight and the clout to jump into that world of railroads and make money that most people can only dream about. He did this, especially in the latter half of his career, by taking smaller, sometimes dysfunctional rail lines and merging them with larger systems. By using the large company to start vacuuming up the small guys, Morgan created efficiencies and economies of scale that led to more profit and more money for him, which he then threw into other industries. For example, you could standardize rail size or rail car size, 
and make a lot more money when you could have trains traveling all over the place instead of in very super local areas, right? You might have a railroad. I know I had one historically in my area. There was a very small rail that just traveled around the hill here. Now, he was uh, standardizing them so they could travel across the country. J.P. Morgan didn't just work with rail lines. He repeated the same method uh, in mergers and so on with Thomas Edison's company and another company creating General Electric. Yes, that GE, the one who built your refrigerator. Morgan did the same thing in steel, creating U.S. Steel, which is still around today. And when you think about how J.P. Morgan had an investment in railroads and an investment in electricity, an investment in steel and many other things, you find a feedback loop of riches and power. Maybe it's a good time to describe this guy who has overtaken the world's economy one railroad merger at a time. I have a recommendation of a photo of you who want to see this guy firsthand. Edward Stitchen. It's uh, Edward S-T-I-C-H-E-N. He took a photo of Morgan that really leaps off the page. I think it's it's got to be the best one taken of Morgan. Morgan actually hated the picture and tore up a copy of it when he received it. And I can kind of understand why. When you see it, you might want to call him a fat cat banker. On the other hand, his huge mustache, bulbous nose scarred from some skin disease, and his scowling face doesn't give you the impression of a fat cat sitting idle. In the picture, Morgan has closely set eyes that are dark and they look right through you. According to people who knew him and worked with him, when Morgan got angry, he turned a deep red with those closely set eyes blazing in anger. People who worked for him and those who had to deal with him really lived in terror. But often that bluster hid a calculating mind, a man who as a child had dreamed of being a math professor. I looked for pictures of John Pierpont Morgan smiling. Not easy. The closest I found was a picture of him with his daughter, where a bit of a smile is passing across that stony face. That scowl was really what defined him. They say, they say the expression you have throughout life is what defines you as you get older. And Yeah, that's the that scowl. That's, that's J.P. Morgan. While he was one of the richest men in the world, he dressed modestly, usually in dark coats. J.P. Morgan had a black belt in taking advantage of how corporations were born, died, or merged in America. That seemed to be his forte. Now, libertarians will tell you that governments should be careful in how they regulate commerce, right? Often saying governments shouldn't overregulate corporations. But in truth, the corporate structure, which is a group of people getting together to act as a single entity, is born out of government. Why do people get together into corporations? The answer is limited liability. The corporation, for purposes of law, acts like a person. It's born, it dies, it gets sued. By getting together with your buddies, you can be shielded from liability by blaming it all on that person that you are taking up, provided you play by government rules or have enough money not to. J.P. Morgan famously said, quote, Anybody has a right to evade taxes if he can get away with it. No citizen has a moral obligation to assist in maintaining the government. If Congress insists on making stupid mistakes and passing foolish laws, millionaires should not be condemned if they take advantage of them, end quote. If a corporation is a person, the merger process is a little bit like adoption. J.P. Morgan knew how to find wayward corporations and bring them into the family. This was totally allowable under state and federal and local laws. J.P. Morgan amassed a mixed family of diverse origins, all of whom made a lot of money. And when Morgan had to, he used government to smooth the way. I'm going to read an excerpt from the book Theodore Rex, which is an excellent biography of Teddy Roosevelt's presidency, part of a biographical trilogy that's highly recommended. 
In this passage, Teddy is going to lunch with some of his old school Republican colleagues and author Edmund Morris describes the interaction between business friendly politicians and J.P. Morgan, who happened to be there this way, quote, the Republicans of the day were accustomed to luxury travel on complimentary railroad passes and a myriad of other corporate privileges. They were prepared in return to give trust lords such as J.P. Morgan their favorable support in disputes between capital and labor or local and interstate commerce. They tacitly acknowledged that Wall Street, rather than the White House, had executive control of the economy, with the legislative cooperation of Congress and the judicial backing of the Supreme Court. This conservative alliance, forged after the Civil War, was intended to last well into the new century, if not forever. As one senator said, let well enough alone, end quote. By the time this meeting happened, the one I'm talking about here, the one that the quote was about in 1901, Teddy Roosevelt's Republican colleagues saw foundational figures like J.P. Morgan absolutely essential for American business. If you want to build a hot fire, you need a bed of coals. J.P. Morgan's money and influence and business acumen kept the fire of the U.S. economy alight. Teddy Roosevelt, who'd just come to be president by accident after McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist, would run into a real problem as he started his term. He'd have to come face-to-face -face with J.P. Morgan in an argument that pitted the youngest president we've ever had, 42 years old, taking office, against a fat cat that liked to bat around government officials like a ball of yarn. Oh, yarn. Yeah, we're going to get to yarn. Don't worry. As Teddy Roosevelt took office, Morgan was attempting to merge two vicious competitors in the railroad space into a single company called Northern Securities. These two companies, if combined, would create a gargantuan combine of railroads with zero competition. For 2021 listeners, Teddy Roosevelt was dealing with a merger kind of like this. Imagine if Amazon, which dominates online sales, and Walmart, which dominates brick and mortar sales, were to combine. The new Northern Securities Company would be staffed with Rockefellers and Vanderbilts and Goulds. Here's another quote from that Teddy Roosevelt book about this, uh, this new combine that was being put together. Quote, Here was a shining necklace of rails bejeweled with real estate spread across America's bosom. What it adorned, it monopolized. End quote. So again, here comes Teddy Roosevelt. He hasn't really ever done any presidenting before. He has to deal with one of the largest mergers the country has ever seen, possibly the world. But Teddy Roosevelt was a student of progressive ideas. Without getting bogged down in terminology and movements, progressivism was a sort of social activist movement that hit America starting in the 1890s. Driven by a desire to right the wrongs of industrialization, Teddy Roosevelt went head-to-head -head with Morgan over the company's charter and the law that had never really been implemented. This was the Sherman Antitrust Act, which really was the embodiment of progressivism. Antitrust meaning anti-monopoly. The act was dreamed up by senators to deal precisely with a monopolist like J.P. Morgan. It was crystal clear as far as laws were written, which I know is kind of amazing, but as with many crystal clear laws, implementation is difficult. Let me read the two main clauses of the Sherman Antitrust Act to you. First off, quote, Every contract, combination in the form of trust or otherwise, or conspiracy in restraint of trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations is declared to be illegal, end quote. So let's decode that. The Sherman Antitrust Act says that if you have a company that restrains trade or commerce among the states, your contracts are illegal. 
So which word is doing the heavy lifting in that sentence? Restraint. How do you define restraint? Well, the White House and J.P. Morgan's lawyers were going to argue over that point exactly when it came to that huge railroad combine. The Antitrust Act went on to say, quote, Every person who shall monopolize or attempt to monopolize or combine or conspire with any other person or persons to monopolize any part of the trade or commerce among the several states or with foreign nations shall be found guilty of a felony, end quote. Yikes. So restated, if you try to monopolize interstate commerce, you're going to prison. Guess how many people had gone to prison by the time Teddy Roosevelt was president under this law? None, of course. It took the ridiculous size of Northern Securities to actually make this antitrust act pop off. But when it did go someplace, the act really started to flex its muscle. It stomped right on J.P. Morgan's big old scowling face. Teddy Roosevelt and his Congress and eventually the Supreme Court dismantled the Northern Securities Company, that string of pearls tight around America's neck. It took a few years, but by 1904, with J.P. Morgan in his 67th year, retirement age these days, Northern Securities was dissolved under the Sherman Antitrust Act, kicking off a series of other trust-busting or monopoly-busting cases in a number of areas, kicking off J.P. Morgan's decline at the same time. Imagine for a minute that you're J.P. Morgan, and you're dealing with this youngster president, right? You're 67, he's 42. I mean, he looks like a baby, right? He's president until 1909, and the entire time, he's stomping all over your life's work. You have to wonder what went through your, you know, Morgan's mind as he was watching the Supreme Court cut him to pieces or Congress just, you know, publicly pillorying him. What it felt like to see that kind of backlash. Now, despite having his interest hammered by Teddy and SCOTUS and Congress, J.P. Morgan wasn't out of the game. And he ingratiated himself to the public during a watershed moment for the American economy. I want you to note the panic of 1907. Remember it. The Panic of 1907. Remember the date. Now, panics are just that. People melting down. Happens all the time in 2021, as it turns out. Panics are when people are no longer sure about the price of their asset, whether that's their stock, their bank account. This is when people don't know if their bank's going to close and take their money with it. Stocks dropped by 50% in 1907, meaning if you had a dollar's worth of stock in a company, you now only had 50 cents or worse. Wealth basically vaporized. There's some great photographs of Wall Street during October of 1907, and you see a mass of people converging on the stock markets in a mob of well-dressed fear. This panic is called the Knickerbocker Crisis after the Knickerbocker Trust, a bank that, to put a long story short, made a bad bet, couldn't pay, and ran out of money. A chain of defaults blew up the bank, blew up the other bank that owed them money, and blew up bank after bank. Just to give you an idea of how small the finance world is, the Knickerbocker Trust was run by a friend and classmate of, yes, J.P. Morgan. That shouldn't be a surprise because J.P. Morgan was the most connected financier in New York City and the country, for that matter. And with all that social capital, he was in a perfect position to do what he did. Morgan called together the top bankers from around the city and kept them behind locked doors all night. In the morning, they released the first of a series of large loan guarantees and deposits to banks about to fold. In other words, they spent their own money to ensure that the money of others would not disappear. Did they do it out of the goodness of their own hearts? Uh, I think you can be the judge. Personally, and just from reading the stories, I think these guys knew an investment in 1907 would pay off over time. Everything was on sale. Everyone was selling. 
Many of them went ahead and bought out struggling companies, grabbing those valuable assets, as my father says, buy when there is blood in the streets. The federal government paid close attention to J.P. Morgan's closed-door financial club here. Teddy Roosevelt wasn't amused by the mass panic and insanity. It came in his second term when he needed to get things done, like expand American power through the Panama Canal. Even after all this trust-busting, Teddy was put under immense pressure in 1907 to let a particular deal go through. Teddy was told by Wall Street insiders and his own staff that he had to put aside the stink of monopoly and let U.S. Steel, yes, U.S. Steel, J.P. Morgan's U.S. Steel, buy out its competition. This would, supposedly, save the markets. So what do you do if you're Teddy Roosevelt? You're watching people's wealth be destroyed. You're the leader of the free world. Do you let monopoly continue? Do you give J.P. Morgan a win that will cement his stake in American manufacturing for decades, if not centuries? Teddy Roosevelt relented an hour before the markets opened. He said about this moment when all the markets were on the line and he had to make a decision, quote, It was necessary for me to decide on the instant before the stock market opened, for the situation in New York was such that any hour might be vital. I do not believe that anyone could justly criticize me for saying that I would not feel like objecting to the purchase under those circumstances, end quote. The credit crisis of the panic of 1907 was over, but the damage had been done. Many people were broken, and there was no FDIC to guard deposits. That means your money wasn't guaranteed in the bank. Clearing houses where checks were processed ground to a halt. Cashing checks was difficult or impossible. Finding out where your money was turned into a nightmare. In the immediate aftermath, J.P. Morgan was hailed as the old man of the financial system and said to have carried the nation's banks across the troubled water of shaken confidence. New Yorkers of a certain moneyed class and that newspaper known as the Gray Lady fawned over him. It seemed like he'd saved a lot of people's bacon. But the deep recession that followed also kicked off real hatred across the country for Wall Street and its antics. Suspicion fell chiefly on J.P. Morgan. If he could single-handedly bail out the financial system, why didn't he stop the crisis from happening in the first place? The afterglow wore off. While some of the press continued to praise Morgan for his bravery and, I guess, charity, there was also widespread suspicion that if someone had that much unaccountable power, they also had the power to wreck the economy. Morgan, disgusted by the scrutiny and the headlines, fled to Europe, where he collected art. Clamoring began for Congress to do something. Now, in my notes, I wrote DO SOMETHING in capital letters. Congress obliged, and it's in these anticlimactic and even sad last few years of J.P. Morgan's life that I want to focus on this man's legacy. As J.P. Morgan lost influence, others sought to supplant him, and other fat cats sought to gain his power. A number of major critics of Wall Street and finance began to arise. I want you to hold that thought about J.P. Morgan and his elder years for a minute as we change gears to the second part of the story. In this next section, I'm going to name drop a little, but I'll try to keep you focused on what's important. So without further ado, here's part two, the yarn wall. One of the most famous political powerhouses of the day, Nelson Aldrich, senator from Little Rhode Island, kicked off a series of congressional committees to track down and pry apart high finance. And though this sounds like the actions of a guy interested in reforming the system, in truth, the old-school Republican was one of those corrupt politicians getting free rail passes from big business. Maybe the best image of this Republican senator, who had a mustache that was legendary, 
was a comic published in Puck Magazine, where the mustachioed Senator Aldrich is pictured as a spider on Capitol Hills, crawling around his web of influence and killing any reforms that big business interests didn't like. Senator Aldrich, the spider. But though he was often one and the same with deeply incestuous Wall Street systems, Senator Aldrich and his compatriots saw the 1907 panic as a watershed moment. The system needed tweaking. It was clearly failing people. Their constituents, really. Populous anger could overtake the Republican Party if he didn't react correctly, and so he and a few other senators got together to bring progressive ideas to the banking system, namely efficiency and scientific thinking. That's right, banks were now going to be efficient and scientific, and it was going to be government that tried to make that happen. That's the essence of the progressive era. In public, the National Monetary Commission in the Senate and its counterpart in the House of Representatives, the Pujo Committee, wanted to figure out how to stop the panic of 1907 from happening again. The public wanted change. But at the same time, in secret, Aldrich the Spider began pulling together groups who would sketch out a new system to rule American finance. We'll return to that secret group later, and you'll learn more about the Spider and his web. The House of Representatives Committee on Banking and Currency began looking into the conspiracy theory here about high finance that ruled the day which was called the Money Trust. This Money Trust is where our yarn wall comes into play. The Money Trust was an idea bouncing around that all of finance was controlled by just a handful of people. A young lawyer named Samuel Untermeyer would dissect the Money Trust and build a wall of yarn that would capture the imagination of Americans and lead to tremendous change. Untermeyer would take on the titanic personality of J.P. Morgan in the last months of the old man's life. And while you're going to learn what I know about Sam Untermeyer, an idealist who's set about to create an alternative to a flawed system, I want you to recall that, yes, Senator Aldrich is working in the background, replacing that fading figure of the robber baron J.P. Morgan with something else. Because though Untermeyer will succeed in bringing a conspiracy to light and succeed in changing the world, really, the system did not really change for the better, in my estimation. So let me introduce Sam Untermeyer, born in 1858. I use the word idealist for Untermeyer, and I mean it. Untermeyer was born at the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains out in Lynchburg, Virginia. In the winter, it's cold, and in the summer, it's pretty hot, and it's a really beautiful part of the world. It didn't take him long to go to the center of American culture and economics, though, New York City, and really start his life there. But Untermeyer loved to appeal to his roots. Reportedly, Untermeyer adopted the persona of a Southern gentleman. He would talk about his father's tobacco-growing roots and act like he was a hillbilly when, in reality, he was thoroughly a New Yorker. Pictures of him show a man with a longish face, receding hairline, kind of a no-nonsense look. Not really angry, but more like always thinking about something else. He kind of looks like your intellectual great-uncle. He's like the person who always has his nose buried in a book or the one that doesn't watch football on Thanksgiving and instead would rather argue politics and smoke cigarettes on the back deck. Even in a painting of him as a young man, he still kind of looks like an old soul. Untermeyer bought into the progressive idea of using reform to make the world a better place. Fiercely anti-monopolist, Untermeyer practiced law like some people practice boxing. When you read Untermeyer's correspondence, you'll find he's a classic lawyer and honestly comes across as kind of irritating. The kind of person who you skip football to talk politics with on the back deck, but he pisses you off so much you have to leave before you finish your cigarette. 
Sam Untermeyer became an expert in corporate law, fusing a personal opposition to unregulated industries with a tireless work ethic. New York City was a center of finance and culture, and by working there, he got right into the center of high society. He was a fierce Zionist and would carry that religious and political philosophy throughout his life. When Untermeyer found something unfair, it seemed he always worked to make it fair. Untermeyer fell into the orbit of high finance not only as this lawfare warrior against corporate interests, but also for them. Even as he opposed mergers of the monopolistic giants like Standard Oil, he'd facilitate mergers of companies like Bethlehem Steel. This law work made him a millionaire by age 30. He purchased a country estate in Yonkers, New York, right on the Hudson, named Greystone. I'll tell you what, if I'm going to buy an estate, it's going to have a name like Greystone. I wish I had time to track down when Sam Untermeyer first must have run into J.P. Morgan, maybe at some of these high society parties. Maybe he saw the scowl. In fact, there's little about Sam Untermeyer in the historical record. But I do know that he envied J.P. Morgan's kennels and built a kennel system to rival Morgan's almost to military precision. He was interested in breeding and training, and he ended up raising some champion collies. I saw a picture of one of those collies, good-looking dog. That interest later gave way to gardening, a pursuit that Untermeyer also focused on with ferocious attention. Because when Untermeyer set his mind to something, he could pick apart all of its components, becoming an expert in it. Untermeyer focused on dogs until he got bored, then he focused on plants, and later he would focus on finance. While he was supposedly interested in these progressive ideas, the ones we talked about, science, scientific efficiency, government intervention, that type of thing, you also see Untermeyer as a man who enjoyed his own riches. He was hungry for headlines, and that Greystone estate, 99-room mansion, 140 acres of land, was always on the social scene. He was a Jewish lawyer rising in a Protestant Christian world. He hosted Gatsby parties, you know, 30,000 people going through his gardens in a day. Here's Martha Stewart, yes, the homemaker celebrity turned ankle bracelet felon, touring Untermeyer's gardens in New York, which still exists today. I'm always looking for a delightful way to start a day. Stephen Burns, he's the chairman of the trustees of this amazing park in Yonkers, New York. Stephen will unveil for us the secrets of this amazing Untermeyer garden, a garden you will want to visit in the very near future. Tell us a little bit about the story. How did this park come to be? Well, it's a park that was a garden. And Samuel Untermeyer was probably the most successful lawyer in America. And around 1915, he hired the same architect whom the Rockefellers had commissioned to do the work at Kaikat to design this garden. And he said that he wanted this to be the finest garden in the world. Wow. He had 60 full-time gardeners, 60 greenhouses. These were world-famous gardens. And the reason I tell you all of this is because when J.P. Morgan and Untermeyer face off, you're not looking at some kind of an underdog. I mean, some people would say that Untermeyer was an underdog, but it really he was part of the society that J.P. Morgan was part of. Maybe not to the degree that Morgan was, but in a way, not too dissimilar. You see the same thing with politicians and reformers all the time in a modern context, too. The biggest reformers live high on the hog. Socialists have multiple houses or luxury apartments. Climate change reformers take private jets. And those who say we should raise taxes on the rich barely go ahead and pay the extra taxes uh, on their own. Untermeyer was brought in to lead the subcommittee, the Pujo Committee in the House of Representatives, to pick apart the money trust. 
This was partially because of a well-cited speech he gave at the Financial Forum in 1911, so four years after that 1907 panic, a sort of conference among banking types. I'm going to quote from this speech about the money trust because it encapsulates the mission that Untermeyer was undertaking and gives you an idea about his voice. He said, quote, There is no definite union or aggregation of money powers in the financial world. If, however, we mean by this loose elastic term trust, as applied to the concentration of the money power, that there is a close and well-defined community of interest and understanding among the men who dominate the financial destinies of our country and who wield fabulous power over the fortunes of others through their control of corporate funds belonging to other people, our investigators will find a situation confronting us far more serious than is popularly supposed to exist. End quote. Now, when, when you really read that, it really sounds like a, a conspiracy theory. I mean, that's what it sounds like. And I'll be up front right now and say that I do occasionally, or maybe often, stray into conspiracy theory circles. I've read the Illuminati theories, the Trilateral Commission, Agenda 21, New World Order, Global Elite, lately um, the Great Reset, you know, all the good stuff. What I think was really fascinating about the speech that won the, about the money trust that he gave is it puts into sort of the common parlance this conspiracy yarn wall. He's saying that there's no real organization at play, but he's saying a certain understanding exists among the most powerful people. He's saying you can't identify it directly, but it exists. I'm not crazy, but there's a conspiracy theory going on out here. This is the kind of talk that gets people put into a straitjacket, but here this guy is over 100 years ago saying that the United States economy was ruled by a cabal of powerful people. But time was on his side. You have to wonder whether if Untermeyer had given this talk a decade prior, he wouldn't have been laughed out of the venue. Some people have great timing. The House Committee, with Untermeyer at the helm, got to work in early 1912, writing public sentiment. The House's resolution about the money trust read this way, quote, Whereas it has been charged, and there is reason to believe that the management of the finances of a great many of the great industrial and railroad corporations of the country engaged in interstate commerce is rapidly concentrating in the hands of a few groups of financiers in the city of New York. Whereas it has been further charged, and it's generally believed that these same groups of financiers have so entrenched themselves in their control of the aforesaid financial and other institutions, and otherwise in the direction of the finances of the country, that they are thereby enabled to use the funds and property of the great national banks and other moneyed corporations and the leading money centers to control the security and commodity markets, to regulate the interest rates for money, to create avert and compose panics to dominate the New York Stock Exchange and various clearinghouse associations throughout the country. Therefore, be it resolved that the members now or hereafter constituting the Committee on Banking and Currency is authorized and directed to fully investigate and inquire into each and all of the above recited matter. End quote. I'll tell you what, 100 years ago, they really knew how to use, uh, use commas because these are some of the longest sentences I've ever read on this podcast. Anyway, the book I've been reading about this era called Gentlemen Bankers has a picture of the Peugeot committee and it looks, well, old school. The men are all dressed in three-piece suits and you can almost smell the tobacco in the room. And it's just like Sam Untermeyer to be somewhere at the end of the row, blurry as hell in the photo. He may have had good timing, but Sam Untermeyer has managed to avoid the history books pretty well. The Money Trust investigation covered three areas. To me, they appear to range from the least important to the most important, but I think Sam would tell you that what's most important here 
is that these are interlocking systems under investigation. First, there are the clearinghouses and the clearinghouse associations. You can think of a clearinghouse as a corporation that processes checks. These days, we do a lot of this with cards and computers, but during that time, this manual action was done, well, manually. Untermeyer's committee described the clearinghouses this way, quote, at the beginning of every business day, each member presents at the clearinghouse with all checks against other members deposited with it up to the close of business of the preceding day. Accounts are stated, and in the afternoon, every debtor member brings the amount due from it to the other members of the clearinghouse, which on the same day it pays over to the creditor members. The advantage of this system over the archaic practice of each bank separately making its collections over the counter for every other day is incalculable. To illustrate, in 1911, checks to the amount of... All right, all right I'm not very, not very good with math. I think this is... $92,420,120. No, no, that's wrong. I think it's $92,420,120,091.67. There we go. Averaging, I'm not even going to do the average daily. We're collected through this clearinghouse system. And that's just in New York. Now, isn't paper great? Imagine all the clerks it took to make billions of dollars of checks move through the system. Amazing we ever made it through the dark ages of using paper pulp to do things. To summarize, the clearinghouses were the groups that keep track of who owes who, what debts there are, and when and how much needs to be paid. If banks did this individually, which they apparently used to, it would be chaotic, involving many thousands of microtransactions. So they centered the clerical work in these clearinghouses. Banks issued checks because it's much harder to rob someone carrying a check than it is cash. Hence, the clearinghouse is born. One of the immediate problems that the Pujo Committee and Untermeyer ran into that was that they found that many of these clearinghouses weren't even incorporated. It was all a gentleman's agreement to process checks, sort of loose confederation of pseudo-companies doing all this check cashing. It was really a club, not a corporation. This freaked out Untermeyer's committee in a big way. This isn't scientific. This isn't enlightened. They recommended oversight of the clearinghouses to avoid panics like in 1907 when that check cashing went haywire. The second area that the committee investigated was the New York Stock Exchange. I don't think I need to explain a stock exchange to the audience, but just know that the exchanges were just as powerful and influential as they are today. The committee found that the stock exchanges believed that they should continue to run as private, voluntary organizations that function more like a club. Uh, Look at this club thing. More like a club than anything else. Private clubs, not corporations. Now, Untermeyer disagreed, but his committee also struggled to even define how it would regulate a stock market. How do you regulate how much somebody owns a stake in a company? Don't they have the freedom to buy into that? Indeed, the committee said that the federal government didn't really have the power to regulate exchanging someone's share of a company for cash. They didn't think Congress should get involved in some of the issues they uncovered, like efforts by the New York Stock Exchange to destroy its competitors or how they chose their members. The committee and Untermeyer fundamentally believed in the stock exchange enterprise, and they weren't too sure about whether to make it public or private. The reason I'm going into this in detail is because we're kind of getting into this right now in this moment with this uh, GameStop Robin Hood thing. To what extent does the government get involved in the exchanges is is the exchange of money for shares something that it needs to get involved with on a daily basis why do you need a public oversight over uh, private markets 
In any case, what they did, what the committee did, was require the exchanges to register as corporations and start disclosing some of their information to the public. They also advised that Congress should end the practice of rehypothecation. I'm not sure I would have known that this word existed, rehypothecation, if it wasn't for the wacko financial analyst Max Kaiser, who does daily financial news shows. Rehypothecation is this really interesting concept that I want to take a break to examine because it ends up coming back around to the uh, the new financial system that was born out of all this uh, storm and drong. Let's say I want to buy your house. I go to the bank and I get a loan. And as collateral for the loan, I pledge 40 acres of woodlands I owned. This gives me your house and a loan to pay off. Now in rehypothecation, the bank doesn't just get the 40 acres if I default on my loan. They also get to play around with that 40 acres. Under a rehypothecation regime, when I'm trying to buy your house, I can get a much more uh, sweet loan agreement if I agree to let the bank do whatever it wants with those 40 acres while it's still in my possession, like use it as collateral for another loan. Essentially, rehypothecation is the act of letting parties with a loan agreement leverage the recipient's collateral. And so what you find is agreements within agreements with banks and other financial institutions leveraging assets many times over until it's confusing what is owned by who. Add into it that the valuation of assets within these agreements is changing. You have the potential for real problems, and you might remember the 2008 banking crisis. Now, multiply that rehypothecation agreement across the industry, and you can see why Untermeyer was calling for a regulation of the practice. Did it happen? Well, not exactly. But back to the findings, because they did not dwell on this for very long, because I think they were excited to get to the third part. This had to do with the concentration and control of money and credit. Let me read section one regarding the nature of the money trust. A lot of what you're going to hear sounds a lot like Untermeyer's speech that he gave uh, back in 1911. So here we go. Section one, evolution of the controlling groups. Quote, your committee is satisfied from the proof submitted, even in the absence of data from the banks, that there is an established and well-identified identity and community of interest between a few leaders of finance. Okay, I'm going to stop right there, end quote. Because I want to note that first sentence and the, the part of it that said absence of data from the banks, absent data from the banks. That's a lot happening in that little part of the sentence. Untermeyer and his committee ran into immense trouble when confronting the most powerful people in the world, as should have been expected, but I think it took them by surprise. The fact is that the fat cats didn't feel the need to answer to Congress. These were firms and figures who spent most of their waking lives being on the best of terms with government officials. Some upstart congressional committee, led by a really annoying lawyer, wasn't about to stop them. I want to read a passage about Untermeyer's difficulty here from that book, Gentlemen Bankers. By the way, I don't think I attributed the author of the Gentleman Bankers book. It's uh, Gentleman Bankers, The World of J.P. Morgan, uh, done by Susie J. Pack, P-A-K. I uh, definitely recommend it. It's got a lot of great details in it. So here we go with the uh, quote here. Quote, empowered by the state, Untermeyer and the prosecution questioned and gathered information for approximately eight months between May of 1912 and January of 1913, an effort that was repeatedly questioned and tested. William Rockefeller, for example, refused to even testify and evaded the subpoena to appear in Washington. The Pujo Committee was forced to station men for more than a half a year at his various residences, but was not able to serve him. 
Morgan was much less evasive, but he and his partners, as well as his friends like George Baker, disputed the committee's claim that it had a right to information that they considered to be private and confidential. It was only after Congress passed a law empowering the committee that the hearings resumed after a six-month recess between June and December of 1912. Even then, the committee was not given all the information that was requested, end quote. So you're a successful lawyer, right? You're, you're Sam Untermeyer. You're a millionaire yourself. You've been empowered by the people with a capital P to seek out information regarding the banking conspiracy. And you and your committee have to chase around a sneaky Rockefeller. Then you have to go back to Congress, hat in hand, saying that nobody's playing fair. Feels a little bit like siblings fighting and having to go back to mom and dad to arbitrate. You can see the difficulty here for Untermeyer. But anyway, let's go back to the report's conclusions about the money trust. I'm going to read them in full now. I'm not going to interrupt you, okay? So this is their third finding regarding the conspiracy. Evolution of the controlling groups. Quote, Your committee is satisfied from the proof submitted, even in the absence of data from the banks, that there is an established and well-identified identity and community of interest between a few leaders of finance created and held together through stock ownership, interlocking directorates, partnership and joint account transactions, and other forms of domination over banks, trust companies, railroads, and public service and industrial corporations, which has resulted in a great and rapidly growing concentration of the control of money and credit in the hands of these few men. The bulk of the oral and documentary evidence taken by your committee was directed towards ascertaining whether, in current phrase, there is a money trust. If, by such a trust, is meant a combination or arrangement created and existing pursuant to a definite agreement between designated persons with the avowed and accomplished objective of concentrating unto themselves the control of money and credit, we are unable to say that the existence of a money trust has been established in that broad, bald sense of the term. Although the committee regrets to find that even adopting that extreme definition, surprisingly, many of the elements of such a combination exist. End quote. This is really the heart of their report. I feel like you can almost see Untermeyer's sweat on the page. They sort of found their money trust, but they had a really hard time proving it actually existed. And in the strictest definition, they themselves say it did not. The nature of a conspiracy is that it's secret or hidden. Any insider knowledge about a conspiracy is necessarily occult knowledge. How did Untermeyer's committee establish that there was a money trust? How did they know for certain that a combine of companies were in charge of the credit instruments in the United States, were in charge of the interlocking directorates? Well, they made a yarn wall. So Untermeyer brought in a statistician whose name I won't bother you with, to create a thing of beauty, a yarn wall to end all yarn walls. The statistician was given all the documentation that the committee had subpoenaed and got to work plotting out the course of money. Where does a dollar go when it leaves your wallet? When it's loaned around and rehypothecated and passed around through checks at clearinghouses and maybe used to buy stock or goods? This statistics team took a look at various banking institutions, trust companies, insurance companies, and private industry like railroads. And what resulted from their work was what's in the final report. Down the left-hand column, you have the recipient of the loan. So going back to my previous example, my loan to uh, buy your house, the Tinderbox Podcast Headquarters loan, let's call it. The next column is the amount, then the date. The next set of columns shows a handful of banking institutions that included J.P. Morgan and Company, the National City Bank of New York, Lee Higginson and Company, Kidder Peabody and Company, and all the big lenders out there. What the statistician found was that most of the significant loans were either issued by the same few companies, 
or were issued in partnership with the big lenders. So Morgan and company will go in on a loan with the National City Bank of New York and do that on a regular basis. They did all this without an Excel spreadsheet, God bless them. The money trust, Untermeyer said in the report, acted in concert. I played trombone back in high school, including playing in the orchestra. There's a rumor going around that the violin section is the critical section that carries an orchestra. That is not true. The brass section is the most important section. And clearly, the money trust would be like the brass section carrying the orchestra through every song. The money trust made the economy play in harmony. They led the tune. Untermeyer and his statistician found that the banking houses shoved out competition on a regular basis and had concentrated loan activity to themselves, their friends, and a chosen circle of other financial concerns. For Untermeyer, the yarn wall told the story. He had proof that the money trust acted monopolistically, which I think is a word, acted as a, acted as a monopoly anyway, and that the money trust might, in fact, have too much power. And before libertarians in my audience froth at the mouth about free markets, I've already explained how readily these banks worked with the government to secure their own ends. National City Bank of New York, for instance, was one of those major players. I've mentioned them. They worked hand-in-hand with government to finance the War of 1812, the Civil War, I mean that Civil War, the Panama Canal under Teddy Roosevelt, and so on. The president of the National City Bank of New York was one of those uh, people in J.P. Morgan's circle who swept into smoke-filled rooms during the 1907 panic. They also had a nice agreement with the Federal Reserve upon inception. We'll get to that. And in the 2008 financial crisis, that same bank, which you might know as Citibank, received a bailout of about a quarter of a trillion dollars coming in cash and loan guarantees. So I don't want to hear crocodile tears about the free market on this one. Doesn't mean I agree with the outcome. Doesn't mean I agree with the progressives. But I don't, because honestly, I don't know what the right thing to do is. However, this is far from a free market. Anyway, the statistician presented the yarn wall to Congress at a strategic time. Namely, the morning before the committee's starred witness went under oath. That man was crotchety, old, but still immensely powerful. That man was John Pierpont Morgan. Unlike Rockefeller or the other bigwigs tipping down their hats and taking side doors, the elderly J.P. Morgan was willing to go toe-to-toe with the committee himself. With some more reading, I might have determined the reason why he was willing to jump right into the congressional uh, testimony, but really I can only speculate. My guess is that with his name being thrown around so freely, Morgan felt the need to clear it. Well, he was also being subpoenaed, so there's that. In any case, by testifying, he walked right into the lion's den of reformers. Not that he went in unprepared. The Morgan partners and their lawyers have been preparing for JP to go under oath in the House of Representatives since they saw the writing on the wall with Untermeyer's relentless pursuit of the money trust. The House of Morgan reportedly despised Untermeyer, seeing him as an upstart, a class trader, and the chief of a committee designed to put JP Morgan's work in the ground, maybe even put him in the ground. Maybe they also hated untermeyer's collies good looking dogs but you know you know rival dogs one of the morgan partners even played with the idea of starting a media smear campaign about untermeyer as an irresponsible muckraker because yes the house of morgan had the clout to do that but as far as i can tell and maybe this is what saved him untermeyer held no special animosity towards jp morgan except for maybe dog envy untermeyer didn't see the committee's activities personal but instead as part of a movement towards progressivism that pushed towards reform. 
Untermeyer said that he had nothing against the motives of the big financial fat cats, but instead thought that there needed to be a set of rules in place to regulate their activities. What was the right solution? Well, we'll find out. Washington, D.C. got ready for Christmas in 1912 as the Morgan Posse came into town. There's a picture I've seen, I believe, of John Pierpont Morgan, his son Jack Morgan, and J.P. Morgan's daughter Louisa approaching the Capitol building, walking closely. It looks cold out. Behind them, the trees are gray, and the sky is that icy white of late December. Woodrow Wilson, a Democrat academic who'd made his name as president of Princeton, had just won the presidency. Shameless plug here for my podcast about the end of the uh, Woodrow Wilson era, outfluenza with the uh, 1920 presidential election. Wilson won in 1912, mostly because Teddy Roosevelt had come in, well, like a bull moose to a china shop and spoiled the election for his friend William Howard Taft, the famously obese president. Democrats like Untermeyer must have felt ascendant with Wilson coming into office. Morgan took the stand on December 18th and 19th, 1912, a little over five years from the pandemic, dressed in his signature dark colors, and he went under oath. We're at the showdown of the decade. Untermeyer, the annoying gardening lawyer, versus J.P. Morgan, the filthy rich fat cat with the temper. Neither of these men had it easy. For Untermeyer, it had to be one of the most defining elements of his career. He'd built a huge spreadsheet laying out a complex conspiracy theory against one of the most powerful men in the world. He had to perform. Morgan, for his part, had to be truthful as he was under oath, but also had to defend his legacy and make sure not to step in any of the legal landmines that were littered everywhere. Don't forget, J.P. Morgan was known for turning red and bellowing when he didn't get his way. But the J.P. Morgan that sat down in the big seat in the winter of 1912 wasn't a bundle of barely restrained fury. He didn't go for intimidation. He was even contrite, maybe humble. He told Untermeyer that, quote, anything that you would like to ask, I will try to answer, end quote. Morgan said that he would stand by anything his partners did and would accept final responsibility for any mistakes made. And Untermeyer began his examination. He asked questions about loan instruments and ownership. And then he got to my favorite part. My favorite exchange, the one that this podcast is named after, was the most revealing about the way Morgan saw the role of high finance in relation to society. Or at least the way he wanted people to think he saw his role in society, because you have to consider whether J.P. Morgan played a character in his testimony in the last months of his life. Here's my dramatic reading of this exchange. For context, Sam Untermeyer is trying to find out from J.P. Morgan how someone gets credit. How do you decide who gets a loan? How do you decide when you're at J.P. Morgan's level what banks to bail out like in 1907? So here we go. I love this section. I'm going to try to do it justice. Mr. Untermeyer. Is not commercial credit based primarily upon money or property? Mr. Morgan. No, sir. The first thing is character. Mr. Untermeyer. Before money or property? Before money or anything else. Money cannot buy it. So that a man with character, without anything at all behind it, can get all the credit he wants, and a man with the property cannot get it? That is very often the case. But is that the rule of business? That is the rule of business, sir. If that is the rule of business, Mr. Morgan, why do banks demand, the first thing they ask, a statement of what the man has got before they extend him credit? That is what they get into, but the first thing they say is, we want to see your record. Yes, and if his record is a blank, the next thing is how much has he got? People do not care then. 
For instance, if he has got government bonds or railroad bonds and he goes to get credit, he gets it. And on the security of his bonds, does he not? Yes. He does not get it on the face or his character, does he? Yes. He gets it on his character. I see. Then he might as well take the bonds home, had he not? Because a man I do not trust could not get money from me on all the bonds in Christendom. That is the rule all over the world? I think that is the fundamental basis of business. All right, that's the end of that dramatic reading here. To summarize, J.P. Morgan seems to be saying that the basis of all business and lending is the is character. The first thing is character. You want a loan? It's not about your means. Whether you can pay it back, it's about your character. What do you think of this? Here you have J.P. Morgan, most powerful guy in America, arguably, definitely one of the richest. Here he is under oath at the end of his long life saying that the foundation of business, of credit, is character. Money can't even buy character. It can't buy it for all the bonds in Christendom. Morgan's portrayal of the world as interlocking characters not taking into account the money that they hold relative to one another, well, it didn't really seem real to me when I read it. And the committee didn't think so either. One commentator had an interesting word for it, describing this exchange as solipsistic. Solipsism is a sort of uh, egoism, a philosophical belief that the self is the only thing in existence or the only thing that can be proven to exist, think Descartes. I think, therefore I am, but that doesn't mean the rest of you jerks actually exist. Morgan abstracted the world to almost a hilarious degree where it was just him and a character floating in space, abstract of any kind of money, any kind of deal making, any kind of loans on the books, anything. Just me and another character. It's almost a, a, a phenomenology of banking. Morgan also claimed in a different exchange that he had little power over any system or maybe even his own bank. So here we go back to me doing funny voices. Uh, here's Untermeyer. Your power in any direction is entirely unconscious to you, is it not? It is, sir. You do not think that you have any power in any department of industry in this country, do you? I do not. Not in the slightest? Not the slightest. All right, so... This is J.P. Morgan saying that he does not have power in any department of industry in this country. I'm going to try to play devil's advocate here for a minute and maybe approach things from J.P. Morgan's perspective. Maybe explain why this abstraction, why he doesn't feel like he has any power and everything is based on character. So here you are, you're the apex predator of the financial system, right? There's so much money rolling around in your orbit that maybe dollars, cents, Maybe they cease to have meaning. Money isn't the numbers, it's the relationships. At this level, all you might consider is character. At this level, you're just trying to figure out who's going to stab you in the back, or maybe even the front. But if Morgan thought that his abstractions would sway the public in his direction, he was wrong. Senator Aldrich, the spider, had lit the fuse on public discontent. The public was watching the proceedings. The Morgans knew it. JP was under immense stress. During the two days of testimony, daughter Louisa Morgan was worried about J.P.'s health with all the pressure of him being under oath. Meanwhile, his son Jack told anyone and wrote anyone who asked that his father was in splendid form. Untermeyer's committee would reject with a sort of seething rage Morgan's testimony. I think that if this wasn't being published in the congressional record, they might have been using four-letter words. 
They were furious that Morgan would be so obtuse. In response to Morgan saying that he not only had no power and that all that mattered was character, the committee said, quote, This again illustrates that Mr. Morgan's conception of what constitutes power and control in the financial world is so peculiar as to invalidate all of his conclusions based upon it, end quote. They went on in their report to say that Morgan's position at the heart of every storm in the financial system was ultimately a damaging force for American society and its economy. They said, quote, Far more dangerous than all that has happened to us in the past in the way of elimination of competition in industry is the control of credit through the domination of these groups over our banks and industries. It means that there can be no hope of revived competition and no new ventures on a scale commensurate with the needs of modern commerce or that could live against existing combinations without the consent of those who dominate these sources of credit. End quote. So this is pretty hefty. The Pujo Committee wasn't just attacking the life's work of J.P. Morgan, but the entire system of credit created by people like himself. They were attacking the very basis of the 1907 panic uh, bailout, I guess, for lack of a better term. They were saying that those who create the credit are making all the rules. The committee dismissed J.P. Morgan and went about writing up its conclusions. In January of 1913, only weeks after wrapping up his stressful testimony, J.P. Morgan went abroad with his daughter Louisa. Europe had been a comfort to the old man during his later years, and according to sources, before he left on his trip, he had an inkling it would be his last. He told a close associate that he had to consider the possibility that he might never return to America. Untermeyer and the committee released the report on February 28, 1913, with all of its scathing criticism of Morgan and his empire. Years of work had gone into its contents. That statistical analysis ran pages and pages. The, quote, report of the committee appointed pursuant to House Resolutions 429 and 504 to investigate the concentration of control of money and credit, end quote, went into the congressional record for the 62nd Congress. The press picked up on it. Woodrow Wilson, newly inaugurated, gave it a firm nod. It was a monumental piece of research work, taking aim at the fortunes of Wall Street, pitting the public against the places where they saved and processed their money. It was the most socially acceptable yarn wall of its time. On March 31, 1913, J.P. Morgan died in his sleep in Rome at the age of 75, with the doctor declaring that he had died of a general nervous and physical breakdown. Can pointed questions be a murder weapon? Can a lawyer annoy you to your death? Morgan's partners saw the old man's death as a direct result of Untermeyer's vicious questioning. In New York, people mourn the passing of a giant. But the Morgan Empire had much more to worry about. The ground shifted under them. Jack Morgan, now thrust into the center of things, saw public sentiment bubbling to a boil against them. He ordered J.P. Morgan and company to divest from certain stock interests, saying, quote, the Untermeyer inquiry and the press generally have indicated a feeling on the part of the public that J.P. Morgan and company ought not to have large stockholding interests in our financial institutions. We all feel it behooves us to pay more or less attention to the public feeling of that kind, end quote. If that isn't an admission that the world is changing, I don't know what is. Untermeyer concluded his work with the Pujo Committee with this report. I'm sure he saw the work capping off a whole lifetime lived in progressive idealism. 
1913, the year that he published the report, would become a year of creation. Untermeyer would be helping out with that creative activity. He was a progressive during a progressive era and had plenty of people asking for him to be involved, specifically involved with that activity we talked about with Aldrich the Spider, because you remember he was spinning a web in the background. With the giant boom of reform working its way across high finance, Senator Aldrich the Spider had been busy in the background drafting legislation that would create a wholly new financial infrastructure, one governed by scientific principles and efficiency. Remember those? Let's now get to part three, the biggest bank of them all. In the last chapter, I told you that Senator Aldrich was working in secret simultaneously with the House of Representatives. Hopefully you remember that. I have a little backtracking to do right now, rewinding a few years, to tell you the flip side of this very public beating of J.P. Morgan, because I think it shows the two-faced nature of these progressive reforms. So while Untermeyer was winding up a yarn wall, Aldrich was weaving his own yarn wall and creating a conspiracy within a conspiracy. It all started with a super-secret conference. We love secret meetings at the Tinderbox podcast because super-secret conspiracies usually end up causing more problems than they intend to solve. Anyway, the meeting at Jekyll Island, which happened in November of 1910, so about two years before J.P. Morgan took the stand, included Senator Aldrich, the Spider, and several other prominent bankers and financial thinkers. These men got together in secret to sketch out the foundations of a Federal Reserve System, a central bank. It took two decades until the 1930s for details about this cloak-and-dagger meeting to go public. I could and probably should do a whole podcast about the Jekyll Island meeting, but here's the cliff notes. Under the ruse of a duck-hunting trip at Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia, Senator Aldrich called together a half-dozen financial royalty. Arriving separately, like something out of a spy movie, these men convened, smoked cigars, and devised a Reserve Association of America— I'll summarize the final form of what they planned to spare you the gory details of what will be the Federal Reserve System. The Federal Reserve would be a single central bank with a dozen branches, a little bit like the bank you probably get your direct deposit sent to with its various branches. Each branch would be governed by a board of directors elected by the private member banks in those districts. Let me slow down here. If you're a member bank, you get to elect the board of directors of the bank in your district. So... If you're a national bank, you have to join. You don't have a choice about being a member. So banks like Bank of America or Citibank or J.P. Morgan Chase, well, you have to be a member of your district bank, kind of like Fight Club. If it's your first night, you have to fight. Today, you'll find that there are exactly a dozen Federal Reserve branches. I have one in nearby Philadelphia, and uh, put simply, the member banks in the area are shareholders in the Federal Reserve Bank. They own it. Restated, it means private banks own the Federal Reserve. They get to pick who gets on the board. Do you remember how Untermeyer's report dealt with check clearinghouses? Well, the Reserve Banks would help govern clearinghouses. Rehypothecation, remember that? Collateral being, you know, bet against other collateral? That's governed by the central bank in part. The Reserve Banks would deal with interbank lending. So Reserve Banks can dictate how and on one, what terms one bank can lend to another. If you are a bank, you can keep your extra money with the reserve, hence the name. The Federal Reserve was, in a way, formalizing all the agreements that the old financial system had as handshakes. Remember, Untermeyer found that banks had a loose set of agreements, but they did exist. 
the Federal Reserve would help set those things firmly. But most importantly, if you were a bank and you needed a cheap loan, you could go to the Federal Reserve. That's why many call it the Banker's Bank. The Federal Reserve, in order to make those loans to other banks, is able to create credit. They can create it out of thin air, essentially. This is a major power. This is the printing press, so to say. So piggybacking off that ability to make these loans to banks, the new reserve banks would be, on the Jekyll Island plan, the lender of last resort. This here is the crown jewel of the new Federal Reserve System. The lender of last resort theory is how you save the financial system, at least in theory. Let me give you an example of how you save the system. Remember when I was buying your house? I took out a loan to buy it. Let's say I can't pay your loan off. I might need to take out another loan to pay my loan to buy your house. But let's say I can't pay that loan either. So I can't pay the loan that I took to pay the loan to pay you for your house. I'm in a panic. I owe a lot of people a lot of money. Those people owe a lot of people a lot of money. Default, in other words, not paying, could cause a chain reaction of failure that might destroy us all. This is a panic. Good thing there's a Federal Reserve then. If all else fails, I can go to the Federal Reserve Bank for a loan to save me because they can create credit. That's their ability. They can create money in the money supply. This way, I don't close my doors and have all my depositor money, your money, wiped out. Loans, particularly loans during the worst disasters, was how the Secret of Jekyll Island crew intended to save the financial system. Loans on loans on loans. Where does the federal come from? Why do we call it federal? Well, the president of the United States, with Senate helping out, gets to pick the board of directors of the central bank. That's it. That board of directors sets policy decisions, like how much credit to make, and what to bail out. In reality, to me, this is my opinion, the Federal Reserve has little federal control over everyday operations. It's an institution dictated by private sector interests, with a sort of dotted line reporting structure. Now, I've worked in a job with a dotted line reporting structure to two different bosses, let me tell you. So it doesn't really work. You report the one more than the other. The Federal Reserve members are all private banks. Those members are who the Federal Reserve, in the end, really reports to. The president gets to set the tone, hawkish or dovish, on interest rates and the amount of credit being created, but I would argue that the president has limited power to govern how things go down. Because in essence... The Federal Reserve is another banking system layered on top of the banking system you use in your everyday life. Member banks own the branches of the Federal Reserve. That means there's no other magical system at play. It's banks on top of other banks and loans on top of other loans. Back in Congress, the Senate committee created by Spider Senator Aldrich, the National Monetary Commission, received the sketch of this Jekyll Island plan in January of 1911, as Untermeyer started spinning his yarn wall in the Puja Committee. In other words, Aldrich and other power brokers in Congress had created overlapping and cooperating committees. But the Senate Monetary Commission that got those Federal Reserve plans got them without attribution. The Jekyll Island gang had created a new system in secret, being discussed in public, with no idea who had written it. I guess everybody figured Aldrich had just found the plan on the sidewalk on his way to work. Really, it had just fallen into his web. Aldrich knew that public opinion about banks and bankers and financial elite like J.P. Morgan would reach a fever pitch as committees like Untermeyer's presented their yarn walls. And even though he stepped down from his seat in 1911, Aldrich's web remained. 
The climax of public opinion seemed to be J.P. Morgan taking the stand close to Christmas of 1912, and it was poetic that, as the Federal Reserve Act made its way through Congress in 1913, J.P. Morgan, the symbol of the old order, died. The bailouts of 1907 were forgotten. J.P. Morgan was now remembered as someone to be pitied, not feared. The Jekyll Island architects of the Federal Reserve wanted to create greater balance. They did not want unelected, unaccountable individuals like J.P. Morgan to take the financial system by the balls. The Federal Reserve would remove financial power, let's call it uh, bailout power. They were going to remove bailout power from those who rose to power seemingly by chance, such as J.P. Morgan. They would then put the bailout power into a bureaucratic private banking system with some measure of control by government. This wasn't the first national bank. I won't go into that history, but it will be the most powerful central bank the federal government in the United States has ever created, and the longest lasting by far. In December of 1913, a year after J.P. Morgan sat in the stand and got grilled to death, Congress passed and Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act with just a few Democrat modifications from that Jekyll Island plan. The distinguished senator from Massachusetts called the Federal Reserve, quote, a Christmas present to the American people, end quote. The new central banks opened in November of 1914, right as World War I broke out. And 15 years later, in September and October of 1929, the United States stock market crashed. It crashed hard. Company after company after company defaulted on loans, some people had lived through 1907 and probably recognized 1929 like an old enemy. This crash kicked off what's known as the Great Depression, which included a 15% fall in global GDP. That's right, global. That means everyone in the world got about a fifth or a sixth of their wealth wiped out in the space of three years. The catastrophe of the Great Depression would take a dozen years to sort out. Many think that the only reason it got sorted out was a bloodletting session known as World War II. Killing off 3% of the world's population does provide a nice reset. So what gives? How did the Great Depression blow a hole in the economy in 1929 when 15 years earlier they'd created a banking bureaucracy? I thought we had a lender of last resort. Wasn't the point to be there to prevent panics? Where's Aldrich? Where's Untermyer? Well, Aldrich was dead. Untermeyer was still around, and I had to wonder what he was thinking. If you listen to economists, many say that the Fed botched the 1929 crash. Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, and Anna Schwartz, a powerhouse economist herself, said that the Federal Reserve, rather than acting as a lender of last resort, sat there and watched the banks drop like flies. The crash in 1929 started in farm country, actually. Many banks in the Midwest, farmers' banks, failed, and they set off a chain of defaults that acted like a viral infection in the financial system. The Federal Reserve didn't call up those banks and say, hey, buddy, you need a loan to tide you over? In fact, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz said something remarkable in their book on the Great Depression. They said this, quote, If the pre-1914 banking system, rather than the Federal Reserve system, had been in existence in 1929, the money stock almost certainly would not have undergone a decline comparable to the one that occurred, end quote. Hold on a minute. Are Friedman and Schwartz saying that the system that prevailed in 1907 would have reacted more efficiently and more effectively than the Federal Reserve System? Isn't that interesting? I thought that Congress had determined that 1907 was a failure. Well, hmm, are you telling me, wait, are you telling me Congress is wrong? 
What a surprise. Now, not everyone agrees with Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz and their conclusions. Definitely not everyone. But it's interesting that they appealed to this old order. That old order, of course, was a cabal of J.P. Morgan and his best friends, appealing to one overwhelming criteria in how the financial system would run. What was that? Well, character. The first thing, after all, is character. And here I am, getting to the end of my podcast, wondering whether J.P. Morgan's offhand comment, the one that caught him so much grief, the one that people said couldn't be serious at all. Well, maybe it was right. Maybe the first thing is character. I wonder how many people's ears were burning. Sam Untermeyer, uh, Pujo, Aldrich in his grave, turning in his grave. I wonder how many of them thought of it as the Federal Reserve utterly botched the Great Depression. Something about Morgan's obtuse statement appeals to me. Because maybe understanding humanity is much more important than technocracy, more important than the bureaucratic systems we put into place. Because I lived through two of the worst financial crises since the Great Depression. It feels constantly like another one is coming. Maybe understanding the character of those around you is what you really need to do in order to keep the world from collapsing. Thanks for listening to this podcast about conspiracy theories, money, the Federal Reserve, and the characters that played in that space in the 19-teens. I've decided to put the podcast housekeeping notes at the end of this podcast in case you don't want to hear the inside baseball and excuse making I usually start with. Because if you're a listener, you're probably wondering where my podcast on the Nation of Islam is. I have failed to produce it by the end of the year, I admit it. Honestly, with the pile of books to read growing, I felt the need to get another podcast out as I cast a wider net for sources on the NOI. After I did the No Taxation and No Representation podcast, I also got fascinated by high finance. A lot of people in the meme stocks these days probably are too. It also was a chance for me to learn about something that I didn't know much about. There's a lot going on in this podcast, but I wanted to focus on characters. I wanted to focus on the dramatic end of J.P. Morgan's life. I've got ambitions to do more writing on this period, especially about Sam Untermeyer, because he was fascinating and underexamined. A lot of information about him is on the cutting room floor of this podcast. This other delay sounds dumb, but it's that I'm a hunter, and I did a hunt ton of hunting this fall. Bow hunting white-tailed deer mostly, but I got a pheasant too. It's part of what I do in the fall, sit, sit in a tree for hours, freezing my butt off, trying to bring home food. I did get a deer, so that's good, still in the freezer. But expect to see delays and gaps when September rolls around because I'm going to be out engaged in that form of barbarism. Side jobs helping various causes, maybe some you've even heard about on this podcast, are ramping up as well. If you're a regular listener, you probably have seen I do an occasional series called Outfluenza, dealing with uh, public health questions. I have a great public health podcast coming up based on a FOIA request I made to the Department of Health and Human Services, which will make Outfluenza a trifecta of health history, actually, once I put it out. There might be more financial topics in the offering if uh, people like these financial stories enough. I really like that Jekyll Island story. Uh, there's a lot to be uh, chewed on in there. And after all, the Federal Reserve wasn't the only central banking attempt in U.S. history. And rest assured, in the background, I am still working on the NOI, the Nation of Islam, because there's a ton of process and it's a criminally under-researched subject. So thanks for listening as usual. I hope you learned something. Make sure you keep your eye on your wallet out there in the tinderbox.